Good morning, friends. Good morning, everybody. Hey, Lou, good morning to you. Good morning. How are we doing today? Good. Happy New Year to everybody. Happy New Year. It's 2020. We're ready to go. Yes, it's January 2nd, and this is session number 27. We are still talking about the chapter 2 uh, in the Bhagavad Gita, and we, today we are going to be talking about verses 54 through 59. Um, some experts in the Gita have actually said of the few verses that are very important, of the few chapters that are very important, chapter 2 is among the most important. And that is because it essentially lays a foundation for what you and I and everybody else basically struggles with uh, in our life. We all talk about self-realized people. That mm -hmm. would, that's what we have been talking about so far uh, in the previous sessions. And we know of self-realized people as Gautam Buddha or Jesus Christ uh, and other self-realized people like this, and although I know of uh, people who are in the Himalayas and read about them and uh, heard about them, I don't know anybody personally. Many people who hear about the Gita and Vedanta don't know about what self-realized people are. In verse 54, Arjuna asks Krishna, after he has talked so much about uh, the Gita, asks Krishna, well, what does a self-realized person look like? And in Sanskrit, self-realized person is known as a sthita pragna. Sthita pragna means one of steady wisdom. And why is a self-realized person one of steady wisdom? Because all of us can be wise at some time or the other. Right. But given enough stress, that wisdom drops off. I mean, right now, I could be very wise when I lose my Mont Blanc pen <laughs> or a watch or even a car. But when the losses or the stressors get to be greater, like my family or something else, then my wisdom disappears and I start to get frustrated, angry, upset, anxious, depressed, etc. Right. So in this case, a steady wisdom, uh, sita pragna, a uh, self-realized person, is wise throughout. He does not lose his wisdom no matter what. And so Arjuna asks in verse 54, what is the description of a sita pragna merged in the superconscious state? So the superconscious state is what we're talking about in terms of self-realization. What does he look like? How does such a person uh, sit? How does he walk? And how does he speak? Hmm. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean how does he sit, meaning how does he sit in a chair. Right. You know, don't forget, at that time, um, they, the, the Gita, the verses were not written down. There was no right. uh, typewriters, no computers, no printing presses. These verses were sung, and then they were transmitted like that to over many, many, many generations because the Gita is said to be at least 5,000 years old. So they were transmitted, and so they had to make the verses concise. Each one of the verses, if you look in the Gita, they're pretty concise. So when Arjuna says, how does such a person sit? How does he walk? How does he speak? Those are all symbolic terms. So how does he sit? Meaning, how is his inner personality when he's just sitting by himself? Right. What is his inner personality like? How does he walk? Meaning, 
how does he contact the external world? When he's up and about, when he's moving around with people, how does he contact the external world? Not does he walk with a limp or does he walk <laughs> with, you know, right. long steps or short steps? And how does he speak means how does he act? Because the voice box, if you remember going back to one of our earliest sessions, we talked about five, Gita talking about right. five organs of sense and five organs of action. The five organs of action are the hands, the arms, the legs, uh, the um, voice box, which is what the speaking is from, right. the, um, uh, the organs of uh, excretion, and mm -hmm. the organs of reproduction. Right. So the voice box is the representative of the organs of action. So how does he speak, meaning how do his organs of action contact the external world? So that's basically what it means. So the first question, how does what's his description, what's his nature, is answered in verse 55. In verse 56, we talk about how does he sit, meaning what is his inner personality like. In verse 57, how does he contact the external world? How does he walk? And in verse 58, it talks about how does he speak, meaning how does he act and how does he express right. himself. Mm -hmm. So with that, let's move on to verse 55. So what is his nature? What's the description of such a person? And the answer that Krishna gives is, when one completely, and the important word is completely, when, com when, when one completely casts off desires, and when one is completely satisfied in the self, with a capital S, by the self, with a capital S, then one is said to be of steady wisdom. Hmm. So when one completely casts off desires, when completely satisfied in the self, by the self, then one is of steady wisdom. What does that mean? What it means is that as we become more and more spiritual, you start to gain happiness from within yourself. And that level of happiness is far, far superior to anything in the world. So... There is a saying by Eric Forum, Eric Fromm, said that happiness is basically bringing stress up to a great level, intention, and then releasing it. Hmm. So you get stressed out, stressed out, stressed out. Am I going to get this? Am I going to get this? Am I yeah. going to get this? And you get all tense about it. And then when you get it, the tension goes away and you say, oh, I'm so happy. What you're happy about is the fact that the tension has gone away. Right. Yeah. So. In order to be happy, you first have to be tense first, right? Mm -hmm. We gave the example in one of our previous sessions, uh, somebody, who, uh, uh, parents who've had their son go away to war, and they've heard, thought he was lost, but then they found him, he's on his way back, and they're craning their necks to see him as he gets off the plane. And as they see him coming, they think it's him, but they're not sure. Right. The tension, are we going to see our son, are we going to get together with him, is so high that when they actually see him, that tension disappears. Eric Fromm says that's what causes happiness. But what the Gita says is the highest level of happiness is not having that tension at all. Right. Then you're happy all the time. Then the self-reveling in the self itself causes the greatest degree of happiness. So... You don't need anything from the world if you're happy within yourself. If you're totally happy without anything, then you don't need anything from the world. Right. And as you gain happiness from the higher, the lower drops off. So we've given this example that I've heard from Gautam Jain, 
that a child, when we were children, we used to play with our toys, had a set of marbles, for instance, or books or comic books. And we said, oh my God, I will love this till the day I die, right? And as we got older, we dropped off those marbles, dropped off those comic books in favor of other toys, bicycle, girls, whatever. So now our toys are money, fame, power, family. Those are our toys. If somebody were to bring those same toys that we had in childhood and give them to us, marbles or comic books, we'd say, eh, this was nice when I was seven years old, but I'm not interested anymore. Why? Because as we got to higher and higher levels of toys, the lower one drops off. Right. The proof is that you cannot drop off. Somebody says, give up these marbles. They're of no use to you. You can't. Only when you take up a higher toy, a higher level of something that you care for, the lower drops off. You can never give up anything. You can only take up something higher. Very, very important thing for every one of us to remember. When you reach self-realization, that's the ultimate. So we have to try to get rid of our selfish desire. You may use the world. This, in the next 10 sessions, Krishna is going to say that over and over again. Use the world, use your senses, give in to your desires, but always use your buddhi. Yeah. Always use your intellect in how you participate in the world and how. For example, if you're a diabetic, and we'll come across this example again and again. Right. If you're a diabetic and you are crazy about sweets, <laughs> The doctor says, listen, buddy, you eat any more sugar, your sugar is going to go higher. You're going to have serious consequences, maybe have problems with your eyesight. You might have to have some amputations. You know, just be, watch your sugar intake. Right. But when you see a nice, hot, delicious dessert in front of you, you say, oh, I want to eat that. That's when your mind and your tongue and your eyes are saying, I want to eat that. The intellect, the buddhi has to say, no. I can't eat that. What Gita says, what the Vedanta says is, go ahead and participate, but use your intellect to allow you to tell you how much to participate. Right. Zero participation, slight participation, or more. So you may use the world, but you should have no value for it. Don't give it undue value. Um, for example, a chief in a primitive tribe, you know, he has these head dress with feathers in it and beads around his chest right. and he thinks that because i'm the chief i've got the most <laughs> beads and i've got the most feathers somebody who's more civilized comes and says well, what is all these beads you can have them i don't care so but to him it's extremely important and for us we feel that that's what's important all these different things um socrates said when i pass a shop i'm amazed at the number of things that man can do without. Yeah. So it is very, very important for us not to keep saying, I want this, I want this. Simplification of one's life, getting rid of things, cleaning out your closets, not possessing as much, gives you so much more pleasure because it simplifies your life. Your mind can think more clearly. Sure. what the Gita and Vedanta says is, that the best way to do this is as you listen, as I'm talking now, as I have heard from others, shravana means to hear these truths. The first thing to do is to listen. Mm. Listen to these truths, and it's that's like looking into a mirror. 
And the Gita shows us as we truly are, like looking into a mirror. Then you start having questions. As you're listening to what I'm saying, what the Gita says, you start listening to these con uh, uh, thoughts, and then you say, wow, you have questions, you have doubts, you clarify them. Next stage is manana, which is your mind and your intellect starts to reflect on these things that you've heard. You start to have contemplation, you start to think about it, you answer your own questions, you contemplate, that's the next stage. The third stage is nididhyasana. Nididhyasana means I know what it is, you keep thinking of it once you reach there, because it's always easy to reach, but you keep slipping. Right. It's important to reach there and then to stay there, and longer and longer. For our whole life, we've been thinking that what I am is this small little body, the small little mind, and the small little intellect. Really, instead of thinking, I am Brahman. If you think of yourself as the majestic Brahman, then this body, this mind, this intellect is nothing compared to it. So that was verse number 55. Then in verse number 56, Krishna says, answers the question, Arjuna's question of how does he sit? What is his inner personality like? He answers, he whose mind is not agitated, underline not agitated, by sorrow, nor excited, underline excited, by joy, he who is free from desire, fear, and anger, he is called a sage of steady wisdom. So a person whose mind is not agitated by sorrow, nor excited by joy. Mm -hmm. So he's not saying that a person who is self-realized, sitting by himself, his inner personality, right? That's what he's really answering. Right. Doesn't have sorrow. He's not saying that. He's saying that sorrow does not cause him to be agitated. So... People have heard stories about Jesus Christ or Buddha getting some bad news. You don't see him throwing himself on the ground and crying. Right. You know, he's not getting agitated by the sorrow. He feels the sorrow, but he can deal with it. Right. Or he tells him about joy. We talked about the story of Ram, right? When his stepmother says to him, one minute he's being told he's being coronated the next day to be king, he doesn't jump up and down and with joy, saying, I'm going to be king tomorrow. And the next day, his stepmother says, you're banished from the kingdom for 14 years, and you have to stay in this jungle. He doesn't throw himself on the ground with sorrow. So the fundamental—and he who is free from desire, fear, and anger is called a sage of steady wisdom, or sthitapragnya. The fundamental principle of spiritual growth is taking up an interest and love for the higher, just as we talked about before. The lower desires fall off. He's not saying he does not have sorrow or joy. Right. You do have it, but those emotions do not agitate you. The more spiritual you are, the more freedom you have from these emotions. So free from desires, fear, and anger is the other thing that he says in this verse. A person such as this is free from desires, fear, and anger. If you don't know yourself, you feel that there's a void within yourself. If there's a void, then you fill that void by turning to the world for sense objects. So because you feel that there's a void, you say, okay, maybe that'll give me happiness, this will give me happiness. And you keep turning to it, and you find that you might get a shred of happiness for a short period of time, right. but you know, immediately thereafter it's not. What did we talk about? I think it was the last episode. We talked about uh, dealing with opposite pairs and equanimity and 
you know, gain and loss and happiness and sorrow and, you know, Correct. being steady throughout those extremes. Yes. So those are all likes and dislikes, yep. opposites, raga and dvesha, which are opposites, and that you have to be equanimous throughout all of those. And basically, the same thing keeps coming up again and again for all these. That's why chapter two is so important, because yep. you one cannot meditate unless you've gotten rid of these desires. Because otherwise, you right. close your eyes to meditate, and the de desires in the mind keeps coming up. So you have to st at least move further along the spectrum of desire to get rid of it. Um, so when you have thoughts turning to the world, then those thoughts become attachments. You think of something, you become attached to that person, or keep thinking about that person, and then you say, well she's an attractive person. So you start thinking about her. Then it becomes a desire. Then that desire becomes a delusion. And that delusion, not in the psychiatric term delusion, but delusion in that there's such desperate need to right. fulfill that desire that you start to do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. Right. Or you shouldn't do. And that's when your life goes spirals out of control. Yes. Along the way, when you have a desire for something, if something comes and blocks it, that becomes anger. Yeah. And when the desires are fulfilled, there's an automatic fear of losing. So let's say the desire is fulfilled. You get, if you wanted money, you wanted wealth, you get the wealth, you're afraid of losing it. The Gita talks about this as the triple gates of hell. The triple gates of hell are three things. One, desire. Two, anger, and three, fear. Desire for an object or a situation. Anger, if that desire is thwarted, as the second. And the third gate is fear that you will lose it once you uh, get it. Right. So that was verse 56. In verse 57, Arjuna's question is answered where he asked, how does he walk? Or how does he contact the external world? Krishna's answer is, he who is everywhere without attachment, he who having met good or evil, neither rejoices nor hates, his wisdom is established. So again, the key words here are without attachment. And key word is everywhere. So we can all be great sages if we're removed from the world. Right. Let's say I'm living up in the Himalayas right. and I'm not a yogi, but yogis who live up there can manage to live in zero degree temperature. Mm. And they don't think of anything because there's no distractions. There's no TV. There's no food. There's no, you know, uh, women to distract them. Uh, there's no anything to distract them. Right. But what Krishna is saying is only he who is everywhere meaning he's in the world, but he's not attached to everything. Attached doesn't mean, in this instance, attached like you are attached to your wife or your kids. He's saying the attachment, like I was saying before, that if one is in the office and there's a woman in the office and you think of her, right. your thoughts are being attached to her, that kind of attachment mm -hmm. with the thoughts. He, such a person, is without attachment, even though he is everywhere in the world, um, in our case, our wealth, our children, 
everywhere, all those things are our attachments. And the Gita says you can be everywhere, have everything, but without attachment. Right. So the examples that Gautam has often given us is that of a rental car and a right. hotel room. Yeah. And I think we've spoken about this in previous sessions, but one cannot repeat it often enough. And no. maybe some of them have not heard. And this I like example. this example because people can, uh, they find it accessible. They can relate to it. Right. So you go to a new, on a vacation, you rent a rental car. You might have the same car at home or you're about to buy it. But if you buy a nice expensive car, as you're taking it out of the showroom, Gautam explained, that if you go through a ditch and the car hits a ditch, your heart goes up and you say, oh my God, my car went through a ditch. But if the same car is a rental car, you say, wow, what great shock absorbers it has. <laughs> And you just keep on driving, right. and you accept that without an issue. If you get into an accident, you say, ah, the insurance company will pay for it. Good thing I bought insurance on it. Right. If you're in a hotel room, the same TV, the same bed, the same king-size bed, same mattresses, everything, and you say, wow, this is so great. Because there's no attachment to it, you find that it's more pleasurable. And that's what Krishna says should be your, asp um, your behavior towards life itself, without attachment. Right. So verse number 58 is a verse that I like a lot, personally. Everybody has some favorites. This is one of my favorites. Verse number 58 um, says, when like, the, when, like the tortoise drawing in its limbs on all sides, he, meaning the self-realized uh, person, withdraws his senses from sense objects, then his wisdom is established. Hmm. Like the tortoise withdrawing its limbs from all sides, the self-realized person withdraws his sense objects, his wisdom is established. So this is, to me, a very important, um, very important verse because I find that these senses need to be pulled back. Mm -hmm. So how do senses, sense organs uh, work? There's three R's not reading, writing, arithmetic. <laughs> um, three R's are receipt of a stimulus, reaction to that stimulus, and then response to that stimulus. So if my wife were cooking something and I'm coming down and I say, okay, I'm on a diet today, I'm not going to eat. Yeah. But I smell delicious food, smell coming from the kitchen. Right. I say, oh, that's my favorite. What happened? I received a stimulus. In my nose, I said... I smelled it. Right. Now I come and I say, whoa. I start to react to it. My organs of action, my feet start to propel me, ambulate me towards that smell. I walk towards the kitchen. I look. I say, wow, this is my favorite. Diet goes out the window. Yep. Here comes a third R, which is reaction. I take the spoon. I put it in my mouth. I say, mmm, that is delicious. What happened? First, the receipt. Second was response. Uh, second was reaction. And the third was response. Right. All three R's. These are the reactions of the senses. The sense organs smelled it, saw it, heard it, tasted it, whatever. And then the organs of action were put into action. So Vedanta teaches us reason, logic, firm understanding and knowledge that there's something beyond all of this 
worldly sensory attention to be able to give yep. them. These so are the one, these are the reins that uh, Krishna, Krishna has and, on the five horses, right? Correct. Yep. The intellect has the five reins holding tightly against the the intellect holding the senses in control, and that's basically what we're talking about right up until sixty, verse sixty. So, in verse fifty-five, we said, "What is his nature?" Right today, now we're talking about verse fifty-eight. Right. We said, "His nature is that he's satisfied in the self by the self, that you have no use for the world." Um, and you, we said that there were two parts to this, which is gaining the knowledge. You get the bliss as you move higher, and once you have the knowledge of the bliss, the lower falls off. In verse sixty-six. We talked about what is his inner personality. The state of fulfillment is such that there is no feeling of want because, therefore, you're free from desire. Your fear, anger uh, goes away. You're not agitated by sorrow or joy. Verse 57, the verse that we just did before this, how does he contact the external world? Uh, such a person is dynamic. There's no attachment. You're not caught up in the world, yet you're participating in it. Right now, as it stands, we're attached to my spouse, my kids, money, and it leads to greater uh, agitation. Imagine if we could do this with no bondage. What is bondage? We say, the Gita says, all of this is bondage because you're bound to the external world right. for your inner happiness. Now comes the 58, verse 58. How does he speak? How does he act in the world? How does he react to the external world? The tortoise or a turtle, has a shell. Inside is a body, and it's got four limbs, a head, mm. and a tail, six altogether. Right. And the minute a tortoise sees danger, what does it do? It withdraws its four limbs, it withdraws its head and tail. All you see is a shell, and the sun is up above. And the Gita says that the slightest sense of danger, what we do is we should be pulling all our six five senses and our mind. Mm -hmm. Those are the five sense organs and our mind because our mind keeps propelling. Just pulling the senses in, if I say I'm not going to smell this delicious aroma right. that's pulling me towards the kitchen, is not enough. My mind has to stop thinking about that. Otherwise, I can go further away from the kitchen, but my mind keeps saying, oh, I know what my wife is cooking, mm -hmm. and it wants to keep going over there. So right. the mind has to be pulled back also. So any sign of danger, just like the tortoise pulls its six sense, um, its limbs inside, we have to do that uh, and bring them under the protection of the intellect. So in this example, the shell of the tortoise is the intellect, and the five, the six limbs are the sense organs and the mind. Right. So we heard at the sailing that uh, saying that fools learn from their own experiences. But we also learn from these sayings that the wise learn from other people's experiences. Yes. So, for example, if somebody asked me, why don't you do drugs? I wouldn't have a good enough answer to say, I don't do drugs because I tried it once and I don't like it. Right. I've never tried drugs. So why did I not try drugs? Because I know from other people's experiences that they're not good. So I say, I never tried drugs because I heard that they create major problems for other people. Right. So the Veda, Vedanta Gita scriptures 
teaches us other people's experiences. The sages that have come for thousands and thousands of years, not just one or two, there have been thousands of these sages. They all confirm that what the scriptures teach us is true. We don't rely on one person, Krishna, saying this is what it is, and therefore you have to believe it. It has gone on for thousands of years, thousands of years, and everybody says that what's in here is true. If that is the case, then we should learn from those experiences uh, that there's some truth to this. So the best armor is to stay out of gunshot range, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you don't want to get shot, just stay away from the guns. Stay far away from Stay away from temptation is basically what it means. Right. If you're if you're not going to be able to respond. So the best safety lies in fear, says Hamlet. Mm. Stay away from danger. Stay alert to danger and its consequences. So what are the if if I'm if I'm an alcoholic, if I my weakness is alcohol, right. the best thing for me to do is to stay away from those people who are going to make me want to drink. Right. You know, there's, if, if, if I'm getting together with my buddies and they all tell jokes and stories of the past and we all say, you know, right. cheers, let's talk about old times and that's fun for me. Yep. The one thing to do is to stay away from those friends and environments that cause it. If I'm tempted to do gambling, I got to stay away from casinos. If right. I'm tempted to drink alcohol, got to stay away from bars. So stay away from wrong company. Stay away from the wrong environment. You need to know, we need to know, each one of us, where our weaknesses are. Every one of us has a different weakness. Some people have a weakness for food. Right. They may be diabetic. They may be obese. Such a person needs to stay away from those areas that cause them to, uh, to collapse in front of such a temptation. Right. If, but if you don't know where your weakness is, that doesn't work. So the first thing to do is to have some self-awareness and go away from those areas. Merge yourself with company that helps you stay away from these areas. So that's why places like AA, right. Alcoholics Anonymous says, get together with the people who are in similar situations who can help you. Right. So what you don't want to do is to get together with people that go to the bar all the time and enjoy yeah. themselves. <laughs> no. So... Oliver Goldsmith said, where wealth accumulates, men decay. Hmm. So Oliver Goldsmith said, where wealth yeah. accumulates, men decay. So people just accumulate wealth without spending it. It causes you to decay. Wealth in and of itself is something that is, we, we misunderstand it. If you have money, if you have wealth, understand that Unless we spend it, meaning it's got to come out of your hand to spend it, that money is of no use to us. Right. It only causes us decay. Only when you give it and you get something in return, you say, okay, now I can enjoy myself. So in order to do that, you've got to give it away. So in Hindu mythology, there are two gods and goddesses for wealth. One is Lakshmi. Lakshmi is the goddess of wealth. You've seen her... Um, Hindus know about her very well because she's got arms with money pouring out of the arms, eight arms, mm. money coming out of them. And she's extremely attractive and beautiful. She's married to Vishnu. Vishnu is the god of preservation. So symbolically, Vishnu and Lakshmi 
which is preservation and wealth, right. are married to each other. Symbolically, it makes sense. If you want to preserve something, you've got to have wealth, and you've got to spend that wealth in order to preserve it. Right. If I don't spend my wealth to maintain my lawn or my landscaping, mm -hmm. it's not going to get maintained. So I can't preserve it. In right. order to preserve it, I've got to have wealth. If I don't have wealth, I can't even preserve what I want to preserve. On the other hand, the other symbolic god of wealth in Hindu mythology is Kubera. Kubera is a deformed god, very ugly looking, but extremely, extremely wealthy. So what that symbolizes is that you could be a god with a lot of wealth, but you could be extremely ugly right. in your handling of that wealth. Some people handle wealth in a very ugly manner, right. as opposed to using it for preservation. So um, it depends on how you use your wealth. You can be beautiful or despicable. Um, so Ramatirtha, another great sage, self-realized person, said iron and gold are good only for buying iron and gold. Interesting. Otherwise, they're of no use. You can't eat them. You can't live off them. You right. can't. They're only good for buying other things. Right. When Ramatirtha was in the United States, when he came here, when before he was 30 years old, somebody made a comment to him about in India living in cages, and he said, "We live in iron cages. You in the West live in gold cages, but yes. we all live in cages." Yeah. And that is true. The cages that we live in are self-imposed right now with our desires. So the last of these uh, verses, verse 59, says, the sense objects turn away from an abstinent man, but not the relish. Even his relish turns away on seeing the supreme. What that means is that where there is a wish, sense objects come to you. When there's no wish, even sense objects don't come to you. Hmm. So the example that Gautam gave is, if you are an alcoholic and you crave for Shiva's regal, hmm. you're going to find that there's a bottle of Shiva's regal that comes to you. Now, it doesn't come right. out of the blue. It doesn't fall out of the ceiling. But because you have a wish, there's a demand. Therefore, there's a supply. Right. Shiva's Regal supplies it, says, okay, in this particular area, there's a demand for Shiva's Regal, stocks the shelves, and it's coming to you. Right. Wherever there's a demand, there's going to be supply. Wherever there's a demand for any kind of a sense object, that sense object appears. That's the key. And that when you have no desire, the sense objects turn away because there's no demand, there's no supply. But... It says the sense objects go away because there's no desire, but the relish for them still remains. Right. So, and the Gita says in this verse, verse 59, that when you have a desire for the supreme, for self-realization, for getting together with oneself, then even the relish goes away. Because as you crave only to get to get to know yourself, to know God, your own consciousness, then even the relish for those objects goes away. So friends, that was a long one, but mm -hmm. an important one.
And I hope you can stay around for the next uh, session because that is really very important. And uh, I hope to see you there. Any questions, please do write them to me on this Facebook page. And those of you who are listening to this on on a iPod right. uh, or podcast, yep. please, if you could go to Facebook, you can ask me questions. I'd be happy to answer. If you have any comments, please do comment on it. Right, Luke? That's right. Gita, the memoirs of a psychiatrist on Facebook. Everywhere you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts. Uh, go uh, leave us a note and go seek us out. <laughs>